Thank you, Dave. And Dave, David and Dave, taking over in services today. Well, like Zach said, my name is Tim Hollis, and I'm uh, one of the ministers on staff here at Parkway, and it's great to be here this morning and not there. I love being there, but it's great to be here also. Uh, if you saw this text, Romans 3, that we're going through today, and you are, you pay attention every week, you're always thinking like, okay, we went through this sermon, or we went through this text this week, and so next week that means we're going to be here. Well, last week we were in Romans 4, and today we're in Romans 3. So you may be wondering, what's happening? Why are we, from, is this a mistake? Did Tim just, is this the only text he could preach, so they had to go back or something? <laughs> What's happening? Originally, the plan was uh, Easter, Jeff would be preaching uh, the text that precedes our text this morning. And then, so Jeff would be here, then it would be me, and then it would be Zach. But Jeff uh, and Casey had to take their daughter, Lark, into the hospital, uh, and everybody's home now, which is great. Uh, he's going to give a little bit of an update after the service uh, during the commission, so you can look forward to that. But they've got a long road of recovery ahead of them, but Larkin's doing great. Um, so Jeff was supposed to preach, but he couldn't. So then Zach took Jeff's spot, and he taught on a text without having the two preceding texts that it depends on. I don't know how he did it. It was really, he did great. Uh, so that's what Zach did. And so now I'm here where I was always supposed to be. I followed the rules. I'm where I am. And now Jeff is going to preach next week on the text that precedes our text this morning. So we're always going to be pointing... Today, I'm going to be pointing back to something that hadn't been preached. I'll be pointing back to what? Back to the future, okay? Because next week, that's what Jeff's going to preach on. So that's why we're in Romans 3, not in Romans 4. Another thing that I want to say is I'm just thankful to have David with us. Uh, it's always great to just get a chance to, to rest. Uh, I'm usually leading on Sunday mornings, and it's amazing to just sit and, and hear everybody singing uh, I'm going to tear up if I start talking about it. It just made me proud. It made me proud to hear God's praises just lifted up in this place. That's something that I have these monitors blaring at me. It's just a lot of me. If you just had to hear me all day, you would be like, oh, this is the worst. But when I get to sit out here with y'all, it's amazing. So I'm thankful. I'm, I'm grateful uh, just for all of y'all singing. It was really encouraging to me. David, I'm especially thankful for because he drove all the way from Justin, Texas, which is like a billion miles away, um, literally. <laughs> and uh, he's, very, he's a very tired person. Why? Because he has three children all under the age of five, and his youngest child is a month and a half years old, or a month and a half months old. I don't know how to speak. Teeny tiny little baby, and so he didn't get a lot of sleep last night, nor does he get lots of sleep ever. And so I'm thankful for his service. Uh, out of his lack and not of a, much of abundance, he still serves us, and I'm thankful. He's come and led before us. Uh, before. He's led uh, a night of worship before with us, and so I'm just grateful for you. As you see him in the hallway, uh, just be sure to thank him. Thank him for, for serving and driving all this way to do that, um, and thank him for waking up because he's probably very tired with a tiny baby. Speaking of tiny babies, all that for this segue. Kelsey and I are expecting our second tiny baby, which is exciting. Yes, we're so pumped. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we hope the second one is as dense and chunky as the first one. Uh, we don't know anything about the child yet, just that it is indeed a human. Uh, and we'll, uh, it is either a male or female, those are the options, we just don't know which one yet. And so uh, the due date is October 10th, so we're excited about that, looking forward to that day. So we'll keep you posted as, as we, we learn more. Be praying for Kelsey, uh, because I don't know what, what you have going on this week, but she's growing a human life. So. Uh, <laughs> 
and holding down a, a job as a, a biblical counselor. So she's doing a lot, and sometimes growing a human life does not feel amazing. So continue to lift her up in prayer. Uh, what I wanted to say is that my son, Haddon, I don't know if you know him, he's about 19 months old. Uh, he is, like I said, very dense, and he's a go-getter. He just, if he sees something he wants, there's no mystery that that is the thing he wants because he's already got it in his hand or he's uh, already tackled a child to get it, okay? He just sees what he wants and he goes and gets it and he's dense enough and large enough that he can get it pretty easily, okay? You don't want your child in a fight with mine because it will not go well for your child. He's just a big fella, uh, but he's very sweet. He's very kind. He just hasn't learned yet that you can't just take things. We're, so we're always having to teach him. You can't take that, you can't push a kid, you can't do this. Uh, and one of the things specifically that he's struggling with right now is that he just likes to put things, he likes to eat things that he should not eat, okay? All the time. He'll just like, we'll be looking through a book and we're like, isn't this a great book, buddy? And he's like, yes. And he'll just start eating it. You're like, no, don't do that. And so Kelsey has kind of developed this game because what we want to teach him is there's things that you can eat and there's things you can't eat. And so she's kind of developed this game to help train him into understanding this is what you can't eat, this is what you can't eat. And it's very cute. Uh, so she'll say, hey, buddy, do we eat ants? He'll go, no. Do you eat grass? No. Do you eat strawberries? And he says, yes. He can't really say yes. His version of yes is gup. And so can you, can you eat strawberries? He goes, gup. That's kind of it. That's a great, that's a great patent impression uh, for those who know him. What Paul is doing in our text this morning is asking us these questions to clarify our understanding of what he said. Just like when we teach Haddon, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, you can eat this, we have this one understanding. There are some things you eat and some things you don't, and we're trying to teach you that. So we're going to ask you questions until you understand in different contexts, I can eat that, I can't eat this, I can eat this, I should not put a handful of ants in my mouth ever. By the way, I have a huge fear about ants, so that's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> Ants in my mouth. I was just thinking about it. It's awful. <clears throat> so Paul's going to do the same thing. He wants us to understand this doctrine of justification by faith. Paul is going to be harping on this for uh, the next few weeks as we continue to walk through Romans. And he wants to make sure that we understand this doctrine clearly. He wants to make sure it's clearly understood. So how does he do that? He starts asking us some very intentional, pointed questions to help clarify this doctrine, to help us understand in certain contexts is this, is this what, that, what that means? If we're justified by faith, does that mean this? Or does it mean this? Or does it exclude this person? Or does it include this person? That's what he's just going to be working out for the next few weeks. So, with that in mind, this text is before us. Let's get into it. Romans 3.27a. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, just to clarify, Paul's not talking about pride, boasting in general. There's a lot of uh, folks that will, will start preaching this text and they'll use it as a way of talking about pride in general. So for example, if you've ever had a conversation with Zach Lee, you know I was going to get back at them, right? If you ever have a conversation with Zach Lee for any amount of time, he will at some point bring up the fact that one time he tried out for the Toronto Blue Jays pitching team. He'll just start talking about that randomly. You'll be like, hey man, I didn't understand what you're saying in that sermon. He helped explain it and he was like, well, as someone who wants to try it out, for the Toronto Blue Jays pitching team, you're like, what? That has nothing to do with what I'm asking you. Even if you walk in his office, the very first thing you'll see hung up on the wall is a letter from the Toronto Blue Jays. He's very proud of this. Now, it's actually a rejection letter uh, saying <laughs> that he's not good enough to play baseball for the Toronto Blue Jays, 
But even if it was an acceptance letter, even if he did have something to boast in, which he doesn't, but even if he did, this is not the text that's going to be confronting that this morning. Paul is talking about a specific type of boasting, specifically boasting in one's justification. That's what Paul is talking about. Not pride in general, boasting about one's justification. So how do you know this is what he's talking about, Tim? That's a great question. I'm so happy you asked me that. Paul began us, uh, began Romans by kind of walking us through the state of humanity. He wants to kind of clarify to us, uh, how's team human doing when it comes to righteousness before God? How are we all doing as, as humans, whether Jew or Gentile, how are we doing as far as righteousness before God? As we stand before God, do we have righteousness? And he's going to say, certainly not. We do not. Uh, so we know that in the beginning, God created the, uni- the universe. He created the heavens and the earth, all that fills him, and everything was perfectly subjected to God's rule and reign. Imagine a universe wherein everything is perfectly subjected. There's no opposition to God's rule and reign. Imagine that universe. And this is what we have in the beginning. There's no war. There's no poverty. There's no sickness. There's no weird diseases. There's no cure for. Everything is perfectly submitted to the design of God. In fact, man lacks no good thing. Humanity has everything they need, all the resources to glorify God forever. And yet, Paul tells us in Romans 1.25, they, being humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so, uh, Romans 1, Paul says that they were filled, being humans again, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is encouraging, right? We're having a good time. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That's how humanity is doing. We're crushing it. We're doing a great job. Not. That's not what's happening. Paul, Paul walks us through trying to explain to us human, humanity is not in a good place. <clears throat> and so we know that God, in his, it's kind of a, a, a narrative of Scripture, what happens is God, and we even talked in theological equipping today, God uh, adopts uh, people for himself. Specifically, he comes to Abraham and says, by your offspring, all of the nations will be blessed. And he begins to make these covenants of grace with humanity. And essentially, he creates this nation of Israel that's meant to serve as the Coast Guard. Kind of as all the nations are perishing in their rebellion against God, Israel is supposed to be this Coast Guard that comes in and says, hey, how you doing? How'd you get in this state? They're like, well, we started worshiping idols. And they're like, supposed to say, don't do that. Worship Yahweh. Come over here. But instead, they're like, oh, what idols? That's interesting. And they begin perishing with them. They're the worst Coast Guard ever. They're like the, the, the Johnny Mantel of nations. They look really good at first. You're like, this is going to go great. Like, God makes a covenant Abraham, and you say, man, this looks like it's going to be awesome. But then every time there's an opportunity, it just gets worse and worse and worse. We'll see. We'll see what Johnny does. Is he going to do some other league besides the NFL? We don't know. Either way, Israel continues to fail. They have the law, but they don't keep it. Rather than submitting to God's rule and reign, they, they worship the idols of the nations that they're meant to rescue. So over and over and over, even Israel, the ones that have God's law, though they have it, they don't live like it. They break it. So Paul demonstrates this in Romans 2. 
He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so Paul concludes, having seen that the nations continue in their rebellion, and then Israel follows the example of the nations, and they continue in their rebellion, Paul concludes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so then comes this, this summary. Paul lays out the summary. And again, I'm, I'm teaching, again, back to the future because we haven't covered this text yet. But Jeff is going to do it next week, and it's going to be so great. So you'll walk away from this sermon. You won't, you won't understand anything. I'm just kidding. I'm going to explain it. But you'll even understand more next week. It's going to be great. Paul gives his thesis regarding his discussion of justification in the next text. And so I won't steal Jeff's sermon, but I have to mention it because everything we're talking about today rests on Paul's argument in this passage, Romans 3, 22. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul is just reiterating, are the Jews any better off? No. Whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then comes this crazy good news in Romans 3, 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, a propitiation, an appeasement for God's wrath. He put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this will now influence everything else we talk about in Romans. This statement. Justification is given by God's grace as a gift through Christ, who is this propitiation to be received by faith. Justification is given by God. It says that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Romans 3.26. So I don't steal Jeff's sermon. I'll just summarize it for you in saying God is, those are my words, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You're not the justifier of the one. You're not the justifier. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the justifier of the one. Therefore, having laid out this doctrine, Paul wants to clarify it by asking us a few questions. So again, Romans 3.27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Can the one who's justified by God, can he boast? No, he's justified by God, not by himself. If God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? Paul answers that. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So let's, let's break this down. First, the question he wants answered is what kind of law excludes boasting? What kind of law does that? Is it a law of works? Or is the law of faith? Which one can exclude boasting? Uh, and then he follows it up by talking about how his, his focus here is justification. He ends by concluding that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is he actually talking about here? What does he mean? What are these things? What's a law of works? What's a law of faith? What's the difference between these two things? What is he actually trying to describe? Uh, first, the word law here, namos, 
can be, and often is, uh, a word to describe the law, the Old Testament Jewish the law. This law, this book of commandments given to Jews in their covenant to God. But it can also mean like when we're talking about a, a speed limit. It can mean a, a law, or it can mean a, a principle, or it can mean a, a standard, or a statute. Okay? And so there's some that say, well, we don't really know what this means. This couldn't, this couldn't be talking about the law when it talks about a kind of law, a law of works, or the law of faith. Those are probably just guiding principles or some sort of statute. But no, this is why I included, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As he continues his argument throughout Romans, it's going to become more and more clear that what he's speaking of is the law. He's talking about the Jewish understanding of justification by the law. So that's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> Our text from last week demonstrates that Paul is indeed referring to the law as he discusses that Abraham was not justified by doing the commands of the law, but rather he was declared righteous, as Zach talked about last week, declared righteous by God by faith. Otherwise, Abraham could have boasted, but he can't boast because he was justified by faith, not by works of the law. Romans 4, 2 through 4 says, <clears throat> for as Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He can't boast before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one that works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So we talked about this last night. Uh, let me give an example. In my pursuit of Christ-likeness, I have grown a beard. Okay? I've grown a beard to be like Christ because I'm commanded to by the gospel. <clears throat> and so in doing so, I don't know who thinks that growing a beard is something really easy. It is awful. It is no fun. You have to constantly maintain it. It's strange that beards are considered these manly things if you consider the amount of time I have to spend in front of the mirror like like sometimes it takes me longer to take care of my face than my wife, which is crazy. And that's understandable because my wife is very beautiful and I've got a lot to work on, okay? <clears throat> but I worked very hard to keep up this beard. And imagine that my justification was dependent on it. Imagine that justification was grow and maintain a good beard, okay? And so I've been trying to grow it out. Every time Dr. Steve sees me, he says, are we still doing this? You're still going to let this happen? Uh, yes, Steve, I'm still doing this. <laughs> Imagine my justification is dependent on my beard. Well, then I have something to boast in because I've maintained it. I worked hard on it. I have, I have put so much work into my justification. Therefore, I can boast. And yes, in this analogy, Carl and Jeff are not saved. <clears throat> if it is because of this thing that I'm justified, then I certainly can boast because the work I put in is my wage. I've earned it. I've earned my justification. What Paul calls a law of works, what he's referring to is an understanding of justification wherein the means of justification is human effort. What he's calling a law of works is a sort of justification that one is made right before God by human effort. That is what justifies. That's what Paul is talking about when he calls it a law of works. Paul is not referring to some different law or some separate law. He's referring to a poor understanding of the law, a poor interpretation of the law. If you thought that the law was meant to justify you by your adherence to it, then you're mistaken. That's what he's saying. 
Because that's not how it was with Abraham. I don't know how, where you got that idea from. So in Galatians, we see Paul explain this. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by what? Works of the law. Not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified by works of the law. In fact, later in Romans, Paul will reiterate this uh, saying, you may say, well, now it's Christ, and so that's why he can say that, because now Christ has come. No, that's not what Paul believes. Listen to what he says in Romans 9. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Old Testament saints were never, set, never justified by works of the law. And if they were pursuing it in that fashion, they were wrong to do so. Paul says that they were actually trying to set up a righteousness of their own rather than relying on the righteousness of God. That's what Paul is arguing here. Justification was never by works. Yes, works do flow out from faith. But your justification rests in faith, not works. And even if you're trying to justify yourself, based on what we know about humanity, how is that going to go? None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So if you want to, by your action, by your human effort, somehow make yourself righteous before God, how's it going to go? Because this is what you do. You've turned aside. You don't do good. None of us. None of us do good. This is, this is our depravity. So us who do no good, how are we going to establish our own righteousness? So by what kind of law are we justified? Is it a law of works or a law of faith? Paul is going to answer that for us. He says, is it by a law of works? No. But it's by a law of faith. That is what excludes boasting. This is something I have to mention really quick. Some might say, <clears throat> what y'all have been saying the past few weeks is essentially this, that one is not justified by works at all, but rather by having faith, by believing God. Isn't that a work? Okay, you need to stop, uh, stop boasting in your works. Works will never, will never justify you, but instead do this one work, which is called belief. Is that what we're saying? Is that, are, we, are we saying a contradiction? No, no, no. It's, you're not saved by works, but you're just saved by having faith. Is that a contradiction? Is that what we're saying? In order to answer that, we have to talk about what faith is and what faith is not. Faith is not a work. Otherwise, Paul contrasting them is silly. If he's saying you're not saved by works except for this one work, that doesn't make sense. The entire book of Romans doesn't make sense if that's the case. If he's arguing that faith is some other work that you have to do or one special work that God thinks is righteous if a human does it, that doesn't make sense with all of Paul's argument. It's not consistent. So let me illustrate it this way. <clears throat> Let's all engage in some good theology. Who here was conceived into sin? They were born into the sin of Adam. 
You were born into a state, before you did anything, into a state of rebellion against God that you inherited from Adam. Raise your hand if you were born into that depravity. We all were. Raise your hand if you have ever sinned or committed any wrong or rebelled against God in any way. Great. We have a lot of honest people. We've all sinned. All of us have turned aside. No one is righteous. And so, if we're then trying to make righteousness come out of something that can never produce righteousness, we're going to fail. There's no such thing as, if I have a, if I'm making uh, all of my works, I'm putting them into a pile. I have a pile of unrighteousness, according to Paul. I have this big pile of unrighteousness. That's not suddenly going to turn into righteousness if I add one more work to it, that work being belief or my effort in any way. So that's not what we're saying. Faith is not this work. Any work that we do in order to be justified is just adding fire to fire. It's just adding sin to sin. And so Isaiah will go as far as to say, even as we stand before God and we just, if we display, we have all of our medals of all the things that we've done that we should be, should be impressive, all of the little old ladies we walked across the street, all of the charitable giving that we've done, if we, we wear that in front of God, stand before his throne and say, look at my righteousness, it says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Only those that are clothed in righteousness can stand before the throne of God, free from condemnation. And faith is this God-given declaration that in Christ, your filthy rags have been washed white. That is faith. It's a gift from God that all of our filthy rags that we stand before God in have been made white by Christ and His death and His resurrection. So Isaiah, thinking of this, in Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So faith is not some additional work you do. Faith is this utter poverty of any good works that yields itself to the richness of God's mercy. Faith is this complete and total emptiness, this lack. God says, show me your righteousness, and you go, here's what it is. And he goes, none of that's righteousness. And yet, in Christ, we've been given this righteousness in and through Christ. Faith is this utter poverty of, of any righteousness yielding to the mercy and righteousness of God. He clothes me with garments of salvation. He clothes me. He robes me in righteousness. So faith is not the thing that you do, but rather what has been done to you in Christ. Faith is the thing that you've been given. And you're, just to encourage us, your justification certainly isn't dependent on how hard you believe it. It isn't dependent on how much faith you have. You're justified the same because it's a gift from God. It's top down. It's not from you to God. It's God to you. You're justified as God gives you righteousness. It's not, man, I just have this much faith, and he goes, that's a great, I'll exchange that and give you a little bit of righteousness. It's not dependent on how much faith you have. That's why Christ is the end of the law, wherein I work to gain righteousness, because my work could never produce righteousness. It'll never produce righteousness. 
Therefore, boasting is excluded. If I provided nothing and everything is a gift from God, my boasting is excluded instantly. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Paul's point here. We can't boast if it's a gift. If it, if it is works, then yes, we can boast, but we can't. Because it's a gift of God. So a law of faith, in contrast to a law of works, is an understanding of justification wherein the means of being made right before God, the means of justification is the mercy of God manifested in Christ. A law of faith is wherein your justification is a gift from God manifested in Christ. You're made right according to Christ's righteousness. That is a law of faith. Therefore, we can't boast. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Of course not. No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so he just clarifies in the end there. If you didn't understand what he was trying to argue, he just says, we hold that one is justified by faith not according to works and by faith apart from works of the law. That's his whole point. That's all he's trying to say. And that's why a law of works doesn't work, because then we could boast. Our faith is given in Christ apart from works of the law. And so I'll say amen to that for now, and we'll just let Jeff teach us all about that next week. Uh, Romans 3:28 uh, through 30. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? That's random. Where did that come from? What are you talking about? Is Paul just like, what does that mean? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? It seems so random. It seems like a, a, a Prius analogy or a Jeans joke from one of Zach and Jeff's sermons. It's like, it has nothing to do with anything. What are you talking about? Did you just have to say that? You just felt like talking about Tim's Prius or Tim's jeans? Is that why? The only reason you're saying that? Paul just out of nowhere. Or is God the God of the Jews only? It seems random to us. But fortunately, uh, he actually does have a point. Uh, I can't always say that for Zach and Jeff. But Paul certainly has a point in saying this. The Jews would not say that God is their God only. Jews did not believe that. They didn't believe that uh, in this universe, God was, they, he, he was just their special God. They believed that all was submitted, all was underneath the lordship, this universal lordship of God. They certainly believe that, so he's not arguing that. But he, they might believe that somehow they're an elevated piece of humanity. They're an elevated nation. Why? Because did uh, God make a covenant with your forefathers? No, made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham, and we're in the, the descendant. We're descendants of Abraham. We're not uh, children of Ishmael. We're children of Isaac. God's promise has come to us, not the Gentiles. And so they might have seen themselves as somewhat elevated among the rest of humanity. But if justification is by faith, then your justification isn't dependent on who your father is or works of the law. If justification is dependent on works, then yes, God is the God of the Jews only. Why? Because in order to submit to the law and work according to justification, you have to become a Jew. Therefore, God would be the God of the Jews only. 
But, Paul says, God is one. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He rests his argument on God's oneness. Again, it seems random, but what he's doing is really smart. He's referencing the Shema, which is this uh, declaration in Deuteronomy. It is this central text. How many people went to Texas A&M? Can I get a whoop? Yikes, guys. Represent, please. I wore this shirt just for that moment. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. At A&M, we have something called the Aggie Code of Honor. And it is this foundational statement that when you, when you go to A&M, even on your first, in your entrance, you have to sign the Aggie Code of Honor, which says, an Aggie does not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate those that do. That's the Aggie Code of Honor. Aggie does not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate those that do. And it is this foundational aspect of Aggie life. If you take a test, I even had some professors, it would be at the top of your test, and you had to sign it with your name, and then it would be at the back of your test, so that you're just this cloud of judgment over you the entire time. If you had cheated at any point, we don't tolerate people that cheat. We don't tolerate people that cheat. We don't cheat, nor do we tolerate those that do. And it's this foundational principle that really kind of is at the center of all of Aggie life. In the same way, the Shema, the, the Jewish, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 is the central core doctrine of Judaism. And so he points to the Shema, that God is one. The Shema being, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. That's why you've seen Jesus reference it. It's referenced throughout the New Testament because it's the central core doctrine to Judaism. And so Paul's seemingly random declaration about God's oneness isn't really that random at all. He's drawing in, he's getting some social capital from his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's drawing them into his argument if they weren't there already. And he's illustrating that God cannot be divided. If God is one, that means he's consistent. That means he's one. And he's consistent even in justification. If it's true that God justifies by faith, and he justifies Jews by faith, not by works of the law, then the same goes for Gentiles. That's his argument. All are justified by faith. Why? Because God's one. He's, he's consistent. He's not divided. He's not more God towards Israel. Israel isn't the major story of the Bible. Israel isn't the main point. Israel is this parenthesis over the entire narrative of Scripture. God wants a faithful people. He is creating for himself a remnant or the church, or whatever you want, you want to call it. He's creating a people to himself that he's adopted, citizens of his kingdom. And Israel was meant to bring people into that. But Christ fulfills the law in Israel and adopts people, adopts Gentiles, so that they're justified by faith, just like the Jews. That's Paul's point. God is one. He says that we hold as one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, therefore both Jew and Gentile are equally justified by faith. Justification just has one requirement, faith in the one who has fulfilled the law. That is the one requirement of justification. Romans 4, 22. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, ours being the church. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is Paul's point. And then that brings us to Romans 3, 31. 
He asked, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul is asking this question to sort of reference his critics. Critics on both sides, maybe. We don't know. There may be people that are very legalistic, that are, that are going around saying, Paul disrespects the law. He hates the law. He's saying that the whole law is worthless because it's only by faith. Works don't matter. So they're saying, oh, okay, I guess we're just overthrowing the whole law. He's one of those people, I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with one of those people where you make a statement and they just go a whole different direction with it. You're like, whoa, 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 what does that even mean? One time uh, I was uh, teaching a class at a previous church and I, I was teaching on predestination and election. And I had a lady after come up to me, she was in her 30s, and she asked me, meaning she's a mature believer. She had been a part of this church for a long time. And she said, man, I love that teaching on predestination and election. Does that mean we don't have to, we, we can stop going on mission trips to Mexico? That was her takeaway. If people are elected by God, does that mean we don't need to share the gospel ever? That was her takeaway. Sometimes people take things away from what you're saying that is not at all what you're saying. And Paul's referencing these critics. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Since one is not justified by, by works of the law, then does the whole law ma not matter somehow? But the person that suggests that throwing, overthrowing the law is, is because of faith, we didn't overthrow the law. They're thinking that faith and the law are opposed to each other, which is not what Paul has taught. Faith and the law have never been opposed to one another. That's not the takeaway from Paul's argument. This person thinks, since justification is by faith, then I guess we've got to overthrow the entire law. That person does not have a proper understanding of the law. They're trying to establish for themselves a righteousness of themselves rather than they're ignorant, as Paul says, to the righteousness of God. So as we've already seen, no one will ever be justified by works, and works of the law were never meant to justify. So if faith is something different from the law, <clears throat> then of course we throw, we, we throw away the law. If faith is somehow opposed to the law, and now everybody's justified by faith, then the law doesn't matter, of course. But that's apparently not the case. What does Paul say? By no means. That's a really strong statement. We've, we've seen it before. Meganointa. That's the, the harshest no that you can give. Absolutely not. We don't overthrow the law. And then what does he, what does he say? We uphold the law. Us Gentile Christians are not expecting this. Okay? At this point, we've heard about justification by faith, and we're like, yes, we have no responsibility to the law. Good. Yes, overthrow the law. And he says very strongly, no. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what on earth does this mean? We have to answer this question so we know where to eat lunch once we leave here. We can't go get bacon if we somehow have to uphold the law. You and your mixed fabrics are in a lot of trouble depending on what we mean by do we uphold the law. There are three views <clears throat> that people will take regarding this, and I will give you my, I'll give you my view. The first view is that we uphold the law insofar as we tell people, why don't you go ahead and try to earn righteousness through works of the law? Go ahead and try. What's going to happen? You're going to sin. And you're going to realize, I'm the worst. And so it's helpful to convict and condemn sinners. That's why Paul's saying, we uphold the law. We uphold it insofar as it convicts and it condemns sinners so that they realize, I need something, I need a different resource. I need a righteousness outside of myself because I'm, I'm a sinful, terrible person. 
And I, that's great, theologically. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. The second view is that Christ has fulfilled the law, and so we uphold the law insofar as Christ has fulfilled it. So we say, yes, somebody needs to fulfill this entire law. And Christ comes and he does that, and we say, we're justified and we're saved and we're in Christ, therefore we in Christ have fulfilled the entire law. So we uphold it. We uphold the entire law because Christ fulfilled the entire law. Finally, the third view is essentially that Paul is referencing certain commands of the law. As if some people are saying, I remember the law. It made me honor my father and mother, and it said I couldn't murder people. So now with this newfound faith, I guess we can just overthrow the law. Let's go murder somebody. That some people are, are going in this extreme. Therefore, I don't have to do the things that God has commanded of me because I'm saved by faith. I'm justified by faith. So I can just, I can just be given this faith, and I don't have to pay any attention to what the law commands. Now, I think the way that language works, sometimes we imagine Kelsey sent me a text that said, hey, it would be really sweet if you went to the grocery store for me. <clears throat> sometimes what we do with the Bible is we take a text like that, and we go, she said it would be very sweet. It would be sweet. What does sweetness mean? Does it mean that the grocery store is going to be made of candy? No, can't mean that. Does it mean that it would be a nice gesture for me to do? Well, yes, it could mean that. Would it mean that it would be refreshing and sweet to her? Okay, it could mean that too. Sometimes we, we break apart the Bible in these ways that are kind of ridiculous and not at all how language works. <clears throat> and so on this, we don't want to divide it too much. I think that all three are possible, but I think mainly what Paul means is that, yes, we uphold the law insofar as Christ has fulfilled the entire law. We don't, need to, we don't need to do any work because Christ has done it on our behalf and we're justified by faith in Christ. Yes and amen to that. But also he's saying that there are things that the law prescribes, there are things that the law commands that we should not neglect. You should not neglect honoring your, your father and mother. You should not neglect obeying your parents. You should not neglect uh, this command to not steal, not commit adultery. Those are things we also want to uphold. And I think Paul's argument is slightly stronger on, that, on the second view I described, or the third view I described. Let's look at Romans 13. Later on in Romans, he's going to clarify what exactly he may be talking about. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's a strong statement, and it had nothing to do with pork. He has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. The law was seen as something <clears throat> that gave uh, what you call vertical commands, things that submit you to God's rule and reign, and also horizontal commands, things that uh, teach you how to love one another and treat one another as God desires citizens of his kingdom to treat one another. <clears throat> and so Jesus, knowing this, Paul is mentioning this loving your, your, your neighbor, fulfilling the law as a part of, that's what fulfilling the law looks like. Loving your neighbor is commanded by God. Jesus was once asked in Matthew 22, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Again, that's the Shema. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. What it seems Paul's point, maybe not here, but eventually will be in Romans, is God has commanded things of you. If you're submitting to the lordship of Christ, if you're submitting yourself to the, the reign of God, then you do what God commands. You have an authority. You have a king. Christ, meaning Messiah, meaning your king, the king of his kingdom. You submit to the commands of Christ. Christ has commanded us to love the Lord our God and to love one another. So in that, we uphold the law. It has, yes, been fulfilled in Christ. And in our faith as we're justified, we get a new authority. We're no longer children of disobedience, children of the devil, but instead we are children of righteousness, enslaved to righteousness. So we do what righteousness tells us to do. That is what it means to uphold the law. We uphold the law. We're not saved by our keeping or doing righteous acts. We're saved by faith in Christ. And Christ, as he saves us, said, he comes to us and says, this is my kingdom. This is my love. This is my, my rule. This is my reign. Submit to me. Enslave yourself to me. So Paul wants to make three things really clear in this text as kind of summary statements. He wants you to first know that justification is a gift from God. It's not obtained by works. Please understand that. If you already felt tense when I said that God requires things of you after your justification, he requires you to do things, your justification is never, ever based on what you do. It's not based by works. It's not founded upon works. You have to understand that. I saw people squeaming and getting uncomfortable when I said that Christ is your king and you're enslaved to righteousness. We're not talking about justification. If you don't believe enough or if you sin, you continue in sin, you you do things that are, are wicked and evil, your justification is not the thing at risk because your works aren't going to bring about justification ever, ever, ever. I want to make that really clear. You're not saved. You're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith in Christ, and that is a gift from God. Paul's point is that faith is a gift from God and is by that, not by your works, that you're justified. So rest in that. Second, that one was never justified by works, and that remains true today. Otherwise, Gentiles would have never been included. One was never justified by works. No one ever was justified by works, but by faith. Jews pursued a law of righteousness by works, and they were ignorant to the righteousness of God, because it was always by faith. And finally, good works, or the law, is established by faith. As we have faith, faith produces something that flows out from us. That which fills us is what comes out of us. And if what fills us is the spirit-given faith, then what comes out from us is good works, is love of God, is love of our neighbor. That is the only result of faith. Apart from faith, you can do nothing good. But the one who has faith in Christ, given to him by God, given freely so that none may, do, may boast, that person can fulfill and uphold the law. And so that's what we do. We don't, we don't uh, fear bacon. We don't fear bacon because we saw in Acts that all things have been made clean. 
All that we have to worry about is if we're trusting in our righteousness, we have no righteousness to show. And we don't even have to worry because even if we do trust in our righteousness still, even though we're justified in Christ, Christ, it's, it's top down. It doesn't matter the strength of my reach. My reach will never get there to God. All that matters is God's reach to me. Christ condescended, and I am in Christ. I've been reached. I've received this faith. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry. So as we, as we close here, I want us to just think about a few things. What do you see when you think on the death of Christ? What do you remember when you think on the death of Christ? By this I mean, do you see Christ's sacrifice as merely a second chance for you at righteousness? Christ is the one that gives you a hearing before God, but you have to convince the jury. Christ is the one that gives you this, this initial opportunity to perform righteously, but you're responsible for the rest of the way. He just helps you. He gives you 99%, but you better own that 1%. Is that how you view your justification? I want us I want us to have a biblical understanding of justification. I want myself, I preach this all to myself. I want to have a biblical understanding of my justification so that I'm not still trying to work for my justification. Does Christ simply qualify you to compete in the race? Paul says no. He wins the race for you. Romans 4, 5 through 8 says, we went through this last week, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work. In Romans 4, 24, it says, it being Abraham's righteousness, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in your own life, how far does God's mercy reach? How far do you think that God's mercy goes? Where do you think it runs dry? And then you have to pick up the slack. Where do you think that God's mercy stops and you have to, your work must begin? Is your, is your relationship in God something that you rejoice in, as we saw uh, Isaiah did? Something that you rejoice in? You say, I will exalt the Lord because he's robed me in righteousness. He's clothed me with garments of salvation. Or is your relationship with God something that is consistently covered by a cloud of disappointment because you just don't reach high enough and you think it's dependent on you, on your work? That's not how God sees it. Before him, you stand in garments of salvation, in robes of righteousness as Christ. So my prayer is that the Spirit would conform our view of ourselves and of Christ and of his mercy to his view. I pray that the Spirit would conform our idea of our justification to God's. We wouldn't continue to strive like Israel did to set up and uphold our own righteousness. But instead we would rest, and I mean that, rest in God's righteousness. When this is our view of justification, then good works actually, they naturally follow. We uphold the law if we are justified 
by a law of faith. And so the other question I want to ask is, is your faith producing not as a means of justification, but as a result of your justification, good works? By that I mean, if God is our king, if, if Christ is our king and he has his commands, what are ways that we avoid his commands? You see, if you have your view of justification slightly off and it's not biblical and you think, I have to work myself in order to gain justification, then you see how hard it is to confess sin to one another. Because all you're confessing is your failure to reach justification. So if you find you, you don't like to confess sin, you don't like to be in community, you don't like to uh, study theology because it reminds you that you don't know what you should know. And God's just looking down on you, shaking his head, disappointed, saying, how pathetic. If you find that that is your common struggle, your view of justification is more skewed than you think. You think it does depend on you, that God's love depends on you, but it does not. God's love, as Zach said last week, depends on God. And it's a gift given to us by faith. So as the, as the men come forward, I'm going to pray. Uh, and we're going to take communion together. We're going to rest in remembering this good news of justification by faith. We're going to rest this morning. Uh, as we take communion, that is this, this sign, this symbol, and this spirit-driven encouragement to our souls. <clears throat> Did you come here with your own bread and wine? You came here with nothing. You're giving it. And you take it. In the same way, that's how our justification works. It's a gift. It's a free gift. So, Lord, we, th we thank you for this good news. We thank you for the gift of your gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would continue to conform our minds to a biblical understanding of justification where we are discouraged, <clears throat> where we are frustrated, where we are disappointed in ourselves because time and time again, we just can't conform to... Uh, we can't conform to your commands. We can't, we can't do all that you've commanded us. We constantly fail. This morning have failed thousands of times. I pray, Lord, that we would see uh, your mercy. We would rest and rejoice in your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.